0: The title of this time together, An Initial Self Examination, is really only a title I can address to myself. So I do. This is me wrestling with me over things I've discovered in me, especially while doing this study that we just completed on the prodigal father and his sons. I do hope, as you listen, that you can find a way to examine your own issues. I hope maybe my issues will help you find your path. But I don't mean to imply at all that all my stuff is yours. So, here we go. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah six eight. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Martin Luther King. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Dorothy Day. Paul told Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love that springs out of a pure heart, a clean conscience and true faith. That's First Timothy one five. I don't love very well yet. After years of marriage, children, and now many grandchildren, I love better than I used to, but that's not saying very much. I would like to think that much of my so-called prophetic rage at the system has been motivated by my love for what is good. And loving what is good automatically demands hating what is evil. And that my periodic angry eruptions have been just impassioned expressions of love. Well, I have to admit that this is only partly true. If it had been completely true, it would have manifested a greater degree of good fruit. But it hasn't. So I believe now that much of it has been motivated not by love, but by fear. Now, the fear has come not from the approaching unknown dangers of darkness in the culture and so forth, the fear of what might come, fear of not knowing what it might do to my children or my family, so forth. No, my fear has come not from ignorance of evil, but from painful first-hand knowledge of evil. I do know what the dark underbelly of godliness, ungodliness is like because in my early adulthood I was living in a confused half-life. The daylight Christian, the nighttime prowler. And to paraphrase Lewis, the mixture of half-light and half-dark produced one whole fog. Now God's taken many years to purge me of that mixture, and I don't pretend to have perfect sight, but I can see clearly enough to confess that my fear of what I saw there and what I know it's really like in the dark recesses of, of a culture that has lost its, its identity, lost its way, fed my anger. It's only natural for us to become angry when we fear something. But that's the point, isn't it? Natural. It's not how we're supposed to live. We're not merely natural people. We've been bought out of the darkness into the light by supernatural grace. If, If the goal of Paul's teaching is, as he said it was to to Timothy, the ultimate goal being uh, love manifested out of a pure heart with a clear conscience rooted in a real living faith, then it seems right to say that wherever we lack love and fail to manifest it, it will be directly due to our having an impure heart, a dirty conscience, and a faith that is partly false. Many years ago, Mary and I were on our way back from uh, the East Coast toward Texas, on our way through Little Rock, Arkansas. On this trip, I first began to be aware of the ungodliness of my anger. We stopped in Little Rock to eat in the restaurant area, bar area where you went to pay had a tv monitor and the, the monitor was set on mtv in only a matter of seconds my demeanor went from tranquil to raging inside i became aware of the families with little children around the room and in my mind's eye all i wanted to do all i could see myself doing was ripping the tv off the wall and sailing it through the bar area bottles crashing into mirrors until the entire place lay in a smoldering ruin Outside I was quietly paying my bill, but in my head I was full of the wrath of God. This inner rage was barely hidden as we drove home. Mary could tell I was highly agitated, but as is always the case with impure anger, especially so-called righteous anger, which is as unrighteous as you can get. I gave her short non-answers as to why I was driving so fast. See, this is so typical of Big Brother-like legalism. By the time we arrived home, Mary, uh, I'm sure, was happy to be able to get out of the car from, for more than usual reasons. And I went to my study to brood. The Holy Spirit was then able to speak to me, and he said, You're angry for three reasons, and only one of them is good. Then over a period of several hours as I was able to digest it, he covered the three levels of my righteous anger, so-called. When two-thirds of the punch is made of poison, the one-third is no longer drinkable. Or as Ecclesiastes says, like a fly in the ointment, so is even a little folly in a man thought to be wise. Here are the three levels. Now, I don't expect you to have the same exact mixture of problems But I do ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to do your own checklist to determine how much of your anger at the culture is born of him and how much of it is born of big brother-like sinful self-righteousness and other motives. I think you might be surprised what you find. Number one. The Lord said to me, Clay, you are truly and rightly angry at the open perversion and wickedness that is rising in the common culture. Now, this was about 1992. The Lord said, you know it can only grow once it's accepted, and it grieves you deeply knowing what you know of it and what it will do to millions of children, young people, and marriages and families. In this part of your anger, you have my heart. I want to stress that before we go further. The Lord's not saying there's never a place for anger. He says in this, in this part, I'm, I'm angry about it too. But number two, He said, but you're also envious. You're envious at them because they are still a part of the kind of behaviors that your fleshly nature craved to participate in and you are, you're envious of it. You won't let it come conscious, so you, you turn it into self-righteous anger. Number three, you are mostly angry because they are becoming an unavoidable reminder of your remaining inner battles, and you hate them for it. So the Lord then said, let's take a tally. They, those who don't know me, are just behaving the way their nature dictates. They do what comes natural to them, lusting, seducing, selling their souls for money. While you, a spirit-filled believer in me, are truly righteously angry at, at that, but then you add in the ingredients of envy, lust, jealousy, dishonesty, irresponsible driving, unloving disregard for your wife's comfort or safety, and in your heart, a spirit of murder. All covered up nicely with religious zeal, making the icing on the cake hypocrisy. So son, uh, up against the unbelievers, lust and seducing and selling their souls for money, you've re- you've got a tally of sin here that doubles theirs. Now there's no fear in love, the Bible says in 1 John 4, so until I can love better, I think I must turn down the volume and decrease the heat of my words on many subjects, not because I have necessarily changed any of my views on those subjects, but because my views, when manifested in fear, produce heat and not light. I feel I've been to some degree sweating really hard while cursing the darkness. Humility might require that I refrain from adding, and so has most of the church, but I must say it, I believe that the church, in many circles, thankfully not all, is in a crisis like no other in the history of Western civilization. The answer is not to raise a white flag of compromise with evil and just embrace the fog and call that light, nor is it to kick the tires and light the fires and fly off into a holy culture war either. Somewhere in the middle of this current culture struggle, there is a reality of the living God we must either embrace and manifest or die. Since Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, I rest in the assurance that the church, the real church, will not die. But I cannot say that holds true for much of what we possibly mistakenly call church. There's a great deal of what we do as the church that might not only die, but maybe. Executed by the Lord himself. For if the so-called good is the enemy of the best, then it might be that the real enemy of God's fulfilled purposes is not the pagan left or the Nazi-like homosexuals or even the manifestly bogus and crooked government of the United States. But it could be the local church down the street from us, the one that has all the right slogans, takes all the politically correct, that that is, right-wing politically correct stances, and pats itself on the back that it stands for truth. They, or maybe I should say we, rest in the fact that our doctrinal purity is pure. We are accurate in our belief systems. We are protectors of the flock and defenders of the truth. And the Lord knows truth is vitally important, and it is. I mean, it's it's a silly understatement, isn't it? Of course, truth is important. Without it, the only thing left is a lie. And lies destroy. Only the truth sets free. Clay, aren't you still standing for the truth? Well, yeah. My words on these various subjects, I believe, are accurate. My words may even be really true. But that doesn't mean they carry the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth and love cannot be separated. In other words, if something is of the truth, it will have love as its focus. If something is truly loving, it will manifest the spirit of truth. But just mere true information, accurate information, with all of its I's dotted and all of its T's crossed, can often be a murder weapon in the hands of a person desiring to destroy another person's life. How many times have you heard it said, or maybe you've said it yourself, I know it's terrible, but you can be sure I have my facts straight. What I just told you is the absolute truth, etc. This is the very reason the rabbis taught that gossip is not like murder, but it is murder. They taught that if an evil report is false, do not speak it because a lie will destroy much good. But if an evil report about an individual is true, Even more should you not speak it, because real evil should be covered, contained, and hopefully where it can be, cleansed rather than spread around. The men who brought to Jesus the woman taken in adultery to stone her were speaking accurately when they stated she had been caught in adultery. In the very act, they said, well, most probably because they'd set her up to catch her just that way. So yeah, it was probably accurate information, but it always takes more than true accurate information to bring forth life instead of death. It takes love. You must tell me that I must love the truth, and I understand that. Of course, I must love the truth. But what does that mean? I I was just a small boy in the long, hot summer of Mississippi's integration struggle in the mid-1960s when men wearing white sheets held torch-lit rallies preaching that the only thing that could save the sanctity of the holy white South was for them to be willing to live and die for the truth. Well, We would all agree with the statement that we should fight for the truth, but none of us would embrace the spirit behind their use of that phrase. Billy Graham has said, if we do the loving, the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth. We've gotten that backwards, terribly backwards. We seem to think we must be defenders of the truth, even if it means to hell with love. Now, how is that working for us so far? Our country is nearly torn in two, and the sad fact is many on the, other side from me, when I ask what they think of Christians, respond with words like hypocritical, mean, hateful, or self-righteous. Now, if that makes you angry, then I guess it might prove their point, huh? See, there's a paradox in this. Until I love those I'm railing at enough to cease railing at them, I have no right to rail. Or, to put it in a more recognizable form, the one who is without sin can cast the first stone. The only one who could, didn't. Beside, railing does not help much, does it? I mean, I've been doing it for years. Unless you want things to escalate badly, then I guess it works. I guess railing will seem like a good thing if you want there to be friction and more and more increase of confrontation that produces heat with no light. You know, they say that unless you're a forest ranger, when you fight fire with fire, you usually just get a bigger fire. We like a good fight, don't we? I tend to say men like to fight because in a certain way we are created to be protectors and providers and that by our very nature requires a certain kind of aggressiveness and ability to pursue and to conquer, etc. But women more and more have developed this appetite for aggression and we still must remember that the God-ordained masculine tendency toward conquest and rule is fallen. It's not holy in and of itself. So the masculine drive for power inherent in the male soul and emerging in deformed levels in the female soul is not godly. It must be brought to the cross, put to death, and resurrected in the power of the Spirit. And God have mercy on both the aggressor and his opponent if they think their raw drive is God-ordained just because it's there. Now, when I used to preach in open-air college campuses, I painfully remember how certain kinds of macho arrogance would rise up in me when I thought I was about to be engaged in real open conflict. A sense of righteous zeal gave me a false sense of bravado. But worse than that, it was energized not by anointing, but by a terrible sense of moral superiority and self-righteousness. It never produced any good fruit that I could see. I'm sure some good came of it. I'm, I'm sure there was some good, but... For the most part, I look back on it with regret. What good was it? It only served to feed my appetite for fleshly, fleshly Christianized arm wrestling. Uh, them versus us mentality emerged that easily morphed into a political polemic. Soon after that, we became the moral majority, which, of course, evidently implies that they are the immoral majority or the immoral minority who are now becoming the immoral majority. The sides were divided. The teams were chosen. The White Hats set to fight the Black Hats. And, of course, we are the White Hats. The culture wars were born, and the escalation has been continuous ever since. Now, it would be bad enough if the White Hats were truly good. But the fact of our history proves that we are as broken, sinful, and immoral as our black-headed opponents, only not so honest about it. We just pick and choose our sins more respectfully. I don't need to delineate examples, but here are just a few in my own experience. I spent the morning praying with an oil man who is embroiled in the fight for his professional life. His enemies are a pack of Republican legalists who are trying to steal him blind. When he's tried to appeal to authorities to, uh, to help him sort out this mess, all he, all he finds is a collusion of lawyers, judges, and business associates, all good old boys, right-wing Republicans, high-profile church people, etc., This same sort of self-righteous evil was uncovered in a major American city a few months ago when a newly elected black district attorney reopened several rape and murder convictions using better scientific evidence. In several of the reopened cases, it turned out new evidence was not even needed because there had been plenty of evidence already that the convicted black men were innocent, but they were sentenced anyway in order to make the Republican D.A. look good like he was tough on crime. This is a horrendous evil that thankfully is being set right in some places. But I will cite just one more for our confused and misguided response to immoral issues homosexuality. More specifically, homosexual marriage. It's amazing to me that a bunch of church people that cannot stay married to each other will sit back and complain about gay marriage and call it, quote, the greatest danger to marriage in our society. Now, I'm obviously not supportive of so-called gay marriage. I don't even accept the concept of the term gay at all. But that's another subject. Here's a news bulletin for us, folks. The greatest danger to marriage is not gay marriage. It is Divorce. Most divorce is brought on by adultery and greed, often by just plain worldly-minded selfishness. The battle for marriage is not in Congress or in the street carrying picket signs. It's not on parading simplistically shallow bumper sticker slogans on your car like Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or even the marriage equal man and woman bumper sticker that's popular in some places. No, folks, the greatest battle for marriage is at your house and in your soul. The great struggle for the survival of Western marital civilization is won or lost by how well you and I love our spouses and stay married to them. This is not in any way meant to accuse any who are divorced or Or in the process of being divorced unless in the process of doing so you've adapted a self-righteous view against other sins like homosexuality or whatever and and, uh, accuse them of being the reason your world is disintegrating instead of looking in your own sinful heart. Uh, The fact is that uh, divorce and other related sins have become nearly, if not completely accepted bits of straight society, so-called. I believe it is easily supportable to say that homosexuality is merely the offspring of heterosexual divorce, the very fruit of its destructive womb. Yet Barner research shows that only 39% of evangelical Christians even consider divorce to still be sinful. At the same time, only 14% of Christians said they would be highly motivated to send help to AIDS orphans overseas. You know what this implies? It strongly implies the belief that they perceive the disease as a deserved punishment from God. See, we're far more elder brother-like than we can bear to face. It's no wonder that Jesus warns us, deal with the beam in your own eye before you seek to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then also he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, there are two churches among the seven churches Jesus addresses in the opening words of Revelation. I want to look at the first of those two churches. The second we'll look at toward the completion of this message, possibly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 addresses the church of Ephesus. Now, we've all heard teaching or sermons from this text about how this family of believers... Were doctrinally pure, morally straight, evangelistically motivated. What could be missing? Jesus says, But you've left your first love. Or, as some translate it, You have left the springtime of our love. Now, that's more of a paraphrase. And the results of that is the idea that Jesus was saying, You know, you're doing all these wonderful things for me, but you don't love me anymore. That was just how we all interpreted it. But Thinking about it, I think you have to come to a different conclusion. Jesus commends them for keeping doctrinally pure. They've resisted the Nicolaitans. They've rejected false apostles. They've worked very hard under tremendous stress. They won't tolerate evil. They've endured hardship and suffering for the name of Jesus. But what Jesus says to them is, In the face of all of this, I have this against you. You do not love. I don't think he's saying you don't love me, although that may be included. He's primarily saying that in the long, hard struggle against heresy, false ministry, perverted leaders, crooked, evil culture, you fought well, you stood well, you've had all the right answers, and yet in the struggle against the bad, you have lost the good. You don't love people anymore. You're too busy maintaining your self-righteous, pure identity. When researchers ask non-believers what they perceive about Christians, the first answer that comes is, well, I don't really know what Christians are for. I only know what they're against. We have become the Ephesian church. We may have everything right except the one thing that matters most. We don't love. I heard today of a very high-profile evangelical church in the heartland of America who've taken a, quote, stand for righteousness. You know what they did? They refused to allow their softball team to play another team in the area that is coached by a lesbian. It's all over the local news and now spreading into the national news. Okay, we are taking a stand for righteousness. And what is it? In a city where there's all kinds of need and poverty and brokenness, our stand for righteousness is we're not going to let our people be around a team that has a lesbian for a, a coach. Now Where is the love? What kind of real stand for righteousness might have presented itself if you had interacted with the other team? maybe there are extenuating circumstances i don't know about but it's hard to think of any it's baseball for heaven's sakes a perfect setup for godly people to be close up and personal with ungodly people and to shine the light of real love in the dynamics of a of a ball field But see, it's much easier to stick our noses in the air and shun the evil lesbian and show the world how holy we are by refusing to allow our precious, righteous little selves to be contaminated by the presence of the filthy sinner. Stinks as a witness, doesn't it? Is there any balance to what I'm warning about? Yes. In fact, I said I would mention the other church from Revelation chapter 2, that's the Church of Pergamum. And when you look at the Church of Pergamum, they get rebuked for the very opposite of what Ephesian, the Ephesians were rebuked for. They were rebuked for for not for lack of love but for lack of truth. They seem so tolerant of false teaching that they've sinned in the very opposite degree of Ephesus, but that's another story one I hope to address in great detail in future studies together. But right now, I don't want to bring balance to this. I don't want to try to find some way to soothe the fact that I believe we are a loveless, self-righteous, pharisaical bunch of people in many instances. Every time I have ever tried to soothe myself and balance this in my own heart, all I've ended up doing is going back to my my self-righteous anger. It's too easy to do that. So before you start floundering around trying to escape the fact that we are like Ephesus, just stop it and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you about whether or not you are loving or loveless, whether you are loving to some and not loving to others. It's vital, not only for the sake of the world we claim to want to reach, but for our own souls. Is there anything worse than a mean-spirited, self-righteous Christian? I don't think there is. I mean, I'm sure an axe murderer, I guess, would qualify, but that's about how far you have to go to find something as bad. I met a few, I don't mean axe murderers, I mean mean mean-spirited Christians, and I've sadly been one at times. Again, not an axe murderer, but a mean-spirited Christian. And it's easier to appeal to almost any kind of pagan than it is to firmly, uh, to, to a firmly fixed religious bigot. I don't want to fight people anymore. I want to love them. I'm married to a person who has had to endure my private rants for two decades. When I would stop long enough to breathe and she could squeeze in a sentence, her only statement would be, Clay, only love will win. I would give her a surface bow to that biblical truth of her statement, only long enough to suck in enough hot air to refill the room with whatever I'm ranting about. Mary's words drowned in my flood of reasons why love was not enough. The Bible, the one we like to quote, the one we point to as the final authority, says love is not only enough, it is the only way. So I guess we better try to learn what biblical love is and then Live that way. Now, some may come to my defense by saying, but Clay, the times are evil. Somebody's got to stand up and fight or our very civilization is hanging in the balance. I understand where they're coming from if they say that because that's where I've been coming from when I'm ranting. I wasn't just a little overheated and needing to blow off steam. I meant what I was saying. I understand that but it was almost always a useless waste of energy. It served no purpose at all, except for maybe one thing. There is pleasure in ranting. Anger is one of the deadly sins that has its own sense of pleasure in its expression. None of the others have that. Lust can starve for lack of food while it's lusting. Pride is never full. Greed, jealousy, gluttony, by their very nature, are always devouring and never satisfied. Sloth sees no pleasure in anything but self-pity. But anger, oh, anger can feed itself on its own raw entrails. Anger loves being angry. Depending on what motivates it, anger can behave like lust in its energies. Yes, there is a righteous anger, but we're not talking about a righteous anger. I remember years before Mary and I married, I'd moved outside town into an old spooky house in order to lick my wounds from a long, painful year of church infighting. I'd just gone to bed when the telephone rang about 10 p.m. It was the husband of a woman whom I had been helping. Uh, I had literally talked her out of leaving him and convinced her to go back and give him, even though he didn't deserve it, one more chance. I begged her to, to not leave. When I answered the phone, I heard his voice speaking in a self-satisfied and accusing tone. I knew it would be you that answered this number. I found out your little secret, haven't I? You're the man that's been slipping around with my wife. I found your number on my phone bill several times. Now the jig is up. Because I'd moved a bit out of town limits, my phone was now long distance in calling their house. And for those of you under 30, you can ask your parents what that all means. So my number showed up on his phone bill record, and he traced out how many times I had evidently spoken to his wife on the phone. He figured it all out by himself. What a wonder. It was bedtime, I was already shut down for the night, but I found myself standing up in the middle of my bed as he told me his plans to come out to see me. Now I had been in embattled leadership meetings, I had endured crazy accusations, I had been shocked by wild rumors, I had spent all kinds of energy calming down angry teenage boys who wanted to burn the church building down on my behalf. So my blood pressure was very high and my sense of self-control was very low. And the cork just blew right off the top of my skull. And I, I just, you know, I just, I'm not proud of this. And I guess it's not funny, but I'm trying to make a point. I just screamed back. I just screamed in the phone. You come right on out here, you stupid blankety blank blank. You are just the blank blank. I I want to. I just want you. Just come see me. Come see me now. Now there's a way of breathing fast in rage that is very akin to animal lust. I was breathing like that as I threw on clothes and burst through the front door to to sit on the front porch and await my victim. Two hours later, after midnight when he failed to show, go figure. I was still pacing like a caged animal and still breathing like that. And then I entered into another stage of anger, one that I pray I never enter again. I began to hope that someone else, anyone else, a burglar perhaps, or some poor misguided crook, would just happen into my lair. Because, see, the altar was raised. The fires were lit. Somebody had to be sacrificed. The Proverbs tells us that a man who has no control over his own anger is like a city that is broken down and has no walls. That means when a certain ungodly anger is given vent to, the very perimeters of the human soul can be breached by the demonic. I was very close to such a state at that moment, if I had not already passed it. By God's mercy, neither my phone caller nor any other poor criminal came near me that night. But I found a certain degree of lustful pleasure in the thought of what I would have done to them. It was as if I had gone from Baal to Moloch, from lust to blood, Now, you might think, Clay, this is way over the top. But let me show you that it's not as over the top as you might think. Mary and I have a good friend, an associate who pastors a very large and highly effective congregation in South Alabama, and he told me and Mary this story, that in the height of the confrontation in their area over abortion, their church people had taken a peaceful resistance stance in opposition to the abortion clinic. They were standing across the street from it in proper distance, but holding forth their convictions in a, in a, a biblical and, uh, and peaceful way. When, uh, and they have been doing this for weeks. But he said one day, uh, knowing that his people were down there after three or four weeks of this, uh, an elderly woman in his congregation, a woman he knew, a woman he had respect for, Burst in his office in tears and told him this story. She said, Pastor, she said, you got to pray for me. Please, you got to pray for me. She said, I was out there with the other people doing my part. And she said, I've never done anything like this before in my life. But she said, uh, they came out and started cursing at us and, and, and waving their fists at us. And all of a sudden, she said, something came over me and I, I, I raised my fist back and I, I cussed him back, cuss for cuss. She said, I've never talked like that before in my life. She said, I wanted to go there and throttle him. She said, if people hadn't held me back, I would have attacked him physically. Now, it is right to point out that probably part of what has happened here is that by, by engaging on this level, she came under the spirit of murder that rules abortion clinics. And, and was not equipped to deal with it. But at the same time, let's don't turn it into something we can blame the devil for. It has to be something that was in her that the enemy could manipulate. And though it was very painful for her to have to face what was in her, it was also very healing and good for her to face it. You remember in Luke 9:51 through 56, where Jesus responds to John and James when they offered to call fire down on their opponents, Jesus said, "You don't know what spirit you are of." Well, do you know what spirit you're of? This story begins what is known as the travel narrative, or the Jerusalem document it describes unfolding teachings and events that occurred in the final days of Jesus earthly ministry it concludes all or it includes all of the passages from Luke 9:51 all the way through Luke 12 and beyond i want you to notice that it was right after this strong rebuke from Jesus about moving in an evil destructive vengeful spirit that Jesus gives what is known as the seven woes message this section includes Jesus' warning in Luke 12, verse 1, which is not a great place, by the way, to divide the chapter. But when he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be, beware of... John, you understand the story. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way. to are up to Jerusalem to die. This is a long journey. It's an arduous journey, and it's a journey that... Takes events take place. Uh, and those events that take place on that journey include the prodigal son story, the, 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 the she- sheep and the shepherd story that we just have included in, in our previous study. Remember that Jesus was uh, surrounded by two kinds of people, the very broken, the very dregs of society, and the Pharisees. So, what we have here is, in this entire journey up to Jerusalem, we have this two groups of people, of course, there were, there were many other stratas of people involved, but these two groups, uh, and they are, they are, in some form or other, constantly before Jesus in, in, in this conflict. I mean, it, this culture war. And, uh, it starts, it starts with Luke 9. It starts with uh, this this uh, village, this Samaritan village, and uh, Jesus sends emissaries ahead of him to let the people know that he's coming. And instead of them responding to him as you would expect them to, they responded politically and polemically and antagonistically, and it's all coming out of the old prejudices and anger and unforgiveness that has raged between Jews and Samaritans for eons and John's response is you want, me, you want me to call fire down on them and just wipe them out now Elisha called fire down on his enemies but that's a totally different context Jesus is not rebuking the New, the Old Testament story of, of Elijah calling fire down the, in the context that was a pretty handy thing to do if you read the story but in this case, he turns to John and he says, John, you, you don't know what spirit you're of. And I keep wondering how many of us, if we would listen, would hear Jesus turn and say, Clay, you don't know what spirit you're of. I mean, it's a, it's a very strong rebuke. You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And thus begins the Jerusalem Documents, which then takes you to Luke chapter twelve, where he warns against the leaven of the Pharisees, and then on through his his seven woes message to the Pharisees: "Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you!" And all you need to read that whole sermon on your own. And and when you, and I'll have more to say about it here in just a minute. Well, let me let me do a heart check here. I hate pornographers. I consider them to be on the same level as rapists who creep into someone's window like a vampire to feed off the souls of your family. Those who do truly make a living, a very fat one, off the wholesale murder of babies make me sick. I can feel my blood boil at the thought of them, and every curse in the language might be in my mind, though I may be able to refrain from speaking it out loud because I've got a religious image to uphold but from God's point of view, what does it look like that I can get so angry at an enemy who is not in front of me while ignoring the needy person who is in front of me? Does it make me just as sick to think of the number of single mothers out there who barely survive, yet who live in the very shadow of a white middle-class church steeple? Does that does that wind me up? Does that keep me awake at night? Well, what about racism? I'm real good at wagging my finger in in people's faces about racism. I have a beloved black son and a mixed-race grandchild. I have black friends that I love very much. I would lay down my life for them. Yet, old white Mississippi prejudices can rise from the dead in a millisecond from inside of me when I hear about the, quote, new Black Panthers, making statements publicly about how they would like to kill cracker babies. Thankfully, what I do find rising mostly in me is the desire to hold my son and my grandchild and my friends close and to protect them from both sides of this evil racism. But I'm afraid and I'm ashamed of the smoldering ashes still hiding in me. I'm not free and I'm not healed until the most outrageous racial attack cannot stir those reactionary embers back into flame at all. I'm not satisfied until they are simply not there anymore. Not that they can't be stirred into action, but when stirred, there's nothing but love coming back. I hate Hollywood, get angry at most of what Hollywood does, but when I see the private pain of motion picture Rich and famous, my heart aches inside over their suffering. And I wonder who, if anyone, prays for them. Who could they turn to for help if they ever hit the wall? I mean, really hit the wall so hard that they would be willing even to let a Christian help them. And I wonder what Christian would be there for them. Would it be some starry-eyed believer so enamored by the sufferer's stardom? that they would be totally useless and a disgusting embarrassment? Or worse, would the Christian be so self-righteous and so condescending and so disgusted by the profligate Hollywood whore who's getting what they so richly deserve, that the very presence of the Christian would be a blasphemous incarnation of the very kind of mean-spirited, hateful, judgmental stereotype Hollywood often characterizes us to be well, politicians. Oh, Clay, please, let's not talk about politicians because I'm afraid we'll all fail the test. Barney Frank just drove me up the wall. And I would snicker and laugh when I would hear people on the right on television mimic his kind of funny accent. I want to tell you what happened to me and Barney Frank. You you may not like this. I didn't like it. I was praying in the spirit one day, just praying in the spirit. Didn't know didn't know what the Holy Spirit was trying to, to to do in me or do through me, but I was just praying praying in the spirit. Up comes a vivid picture of Barney Frank. Now, for my British audience, Barney Frank is an openly practicing homosexual who is probably more personally responsible for the debacle of the housing industry in America through manipulation and malfeasance and uh, misuse of his authority. He's probably more personally responsible for it, along with Senator Chris Dodd, of any two people in the whole uh, uh, scenario of our current uh, economic crisis uh, beside that, he's he's well known in Washington as uh, a flamboyant uh, practicing homosexual who has actually engaged in uh, pedophilic activity from his senatorial office, and uh, he might be the poster child of who those on the right would would hate uh, the most. And I'm praying in the Spirit, and here before my face is Barney Frank. But he's not Barney Frank as you see him on television or in newspapers. He's Barney Frank about age 10, 11 years old. And he's surrounded by bullies, and he's crying. Now, let me tell you something. Be careful here. Be very careful. If you happen to be all politically stirred up and angry, and you don't want to hear anything, that would imply God's merciful grace extended toward your political enemy. Beware. You may be in more danger than your enemy is. And I'm not saying that in arrogance, I say it in fear of the Lord. Because you've got to remember something, folks. God is God is not impressed with either side of this so-called culture war. God hates evil. God hates sin. And God hates hypocritical, arrogant, self-righteous sin maybe more than he hates the stuff we all tend to call sin. You know, the easily identified sin. And I found myself praying for Barney Frank. And I found myself feeling a a level of pain in my body, a a pain in my chest. That doesn't excuse what he's done as an adult. It doesn't excuse any of it. But I tell you what. It sure does change my view of him. I, I saw him as a human being, and I felt the pain of his rejection and confusion as boys were making fun of his lisp and making fun of his his weaknesses and and, and laughing and got you know. I always I always wonder you know when are we ever gonna wake up? When are, when are we ever gonna start walking in discernment and and spiritual? Uh, maturity on these things. When clay? When is clay ever going to do it? Are are we Pharisees? Or maybe I should phrase it better. How often do we lapse into Pharisaical attitudes? Maybe for each of us it's different due to our background and life experience. But whatever the answer to that question may be, we are responsible to look for it and admit it when we find it, and to repent. This is not the time to make excuses or point our fingers at all the valid reasons we may have for being angry at the world. Are all of the accusations against the church valid from, from unbelievers? Of course not. But whatever accusations are valid are destroying our effectiveness for Christ in the world and therefore destroying people's lives. And we are going to be held responsible for that. So I'm seeking to awaken us to the need to examine our own hearts. I'm trying very hard to be careful not to examine your heart or the hearts of those I mentioned in these stories. I'm mostly concerned with my heart, and I'm asking you to just listen in and and participate in my self-examination in hopes that it will awaken you to your own. All the while, I'm... I'm walking us through some of this. Some of you will be constantly tempted to counter this with many outlandish examples of pagan cruelty and stupidity and arrogance and false arguments. You must choose to battle against giving in to that temptation. That all of your examples may be valid is not the point. It does not matter at this point. All that matters... In this present moment, is that you let the Holy Spirit talk to you about your own heart. And wherever you find Pharisaical arrogance in you, that you hate it, as much as you hate other sins. Once, when I was pastoring, I was teaching an adult class of supposedly mature people, and in the course of my address, I told them of a friend of mine, a member of our church who had been in a coffee shop the previous Sunday, which happened also to be the day after Christmas. My friend said that his waitress seemed exhausted and obviously had been crying. He couldn't help but ask her what was wrong, and she said, I worked everybody's shifts for for them who asked me to during the holidays so that they could be with their families. I needed the extra money, and I, I haven't had a day off, though, for nearly two weeks, and my boyfriend... She lived with her boyfriend. She wasn't married. My boyfriend and I were going to have today, just, just today, together. And we planned to do our Christmas celebrating today. And I got called in to work by my boss. And when I asked him what happened to the girl who was supposed to fill in for me today, he said, well, she called and said she couldn't come. She decided she needed to be in church today. She felt guilty, see, if she didn't go on and go to church. She knew you You don't go to church and it probably wouldn't matter to you uh, since you're not a Christian. So here I am, she said, wiping tears. Now I'm fully certain that the point of this story is not wasted on any of you. You understand what a pitiful excuse of a disciple of Jesus this waitress was who not only did not keep her word to relieve this already overworked other waitress, but who did so because... The other waitress was not a believer. And so her needs and plans didn't matter, did they? But if you're disturbed by that lousy witness from that waitress, wait till you hear the reaction of a couple of people in the class where I was telling this. They actually said, well, it serves her right. She had no business working on the Lord's Day. And that other girl... Well, she was also right to choose to go to church. She did the righteous thing. She didn't break the Sabbath. Are you as flabbergasted as I was? I've debated atheist college professors. I have confronted hardened lesbian activists. I have worked with drug-infested and alcohol-soaked brains that have lost the good of reason. But I have never encountered a moral blindness any darker than I did at that moment. That's it, It's bad to be bad, folks, but the worst kind of bad is that which you think God is blessing. And though it may seem extreme, there's not a whole lot of difference in the spirit of hatred and evil in this way of thinking that I just described and the Taliban who thinks when they cut a person's hand off, they're doing God a service. Trying to reason with them of the utter lovelessness of their position fell on deaf set of ears, as deaf as I've ever encountered. Well, let me give you another example. And there's so many. And I'm only doing it to try to awaken you to what might be in your own heart, my own heart. A man I know in Kentucky came home to find that his wife of 10 years had moved out and run off with someone else. After years of recovery from the devastation, he was engaged to marry again. His pastor took him and his new bride uh, through the premarital counseling and everything seemed fine. But when it came time to plan the actual ceremony, this pastor, who's part of a denomination that is notoriously anti-sacramental and who would strongly argue that there's nothing inherently holy about any building told the couple that because my friend had been married before, they therefore could not be married in the main sanctuary. They could only marry in the smaller chapel next door. So by that logic, the less holy the event, whatever that means, the smaller the building? So they could probably do dirty dancing in the administrative office wing. I wonder what might be allowed in the janitor's closet. Again, no amount of logic could get through the shroud of religious stupidity. If the marriage is valid in the small chapel, it is valid in the large sanctuary. If it is invalid in the large sanctuary, it is invalid in the chapel. Any unbeliever would get that. It it takes religious legalistic ignorance of Christians to not get that. Now, this is not new to me. Because of my broken early sexuality and my street prowling, I had a pretty clear view of two worlds. In my attempt to overcome my own darkness, I threw myself into Christian stuff with all I knew how. My first person uh, to train me in ministry had an unusually powerful testimony. His lungs and three ribs had been supernaturally put back in in a Pentecostal tent revival after he had been surgically uh, uh, sent home with a death sentence. Beside that, he was very non-religious. He was very audacious without being arrogant, and I learned a lot from watching him how to really love unlovable people without coming across religious or bigoted. I had to later become a better church person to become religious and bigoted. But anyway, in 1972, I joined a band that was sent by Teen Challenge into some of the darkest parts of the United States, Buffalo, New York, Detroit, south side of Chicago, to name a few, Religious jargon didn't work well in those places, so early on, I, I learned how to relate to all kinds of people. And we were playing, uh, we were supposed to play at a concert in a large evangelical church in Chicago. We went to the streets and handed out free tickets to anyone who would take them. By 6.30, the auditorium was surrounded by several hundred, mostly kids, coming to hear us. I mean, we thought that was the idea, you know, was to get them in there so they could hear what we had to give. But the drummer looked out from behind the stage area and said, guys, people are coming to the door and talking to ushers and then turning around and leaving. I mean, a lot of them are doing that. It looks like they're being turned away. I made my way to the front door to check out what this was about. And we found ushers from the church, all church members, meeting these kids at the door. And if they smelled of tobacco or worse, or if they had tattoos, yes, they had them back then. Or if their hair or dress was what these jokers were calling unacceptable for church. They were turning them away. I was barely 18 and hardly mature enough to be on the road in ministry, but I can say I don't think I would do anything differently now than I did then. I hit the ceiling. The rest of the band came in beside me and we attempted to put this injustice and misrepresentation of the gospel right, but it was too late. Word moved swiftly through these crowds of kids that all this was religious BS and in a few minutes it was clear that there would not only be no concert but we had successfully given hundreds of street kids an inoculation against ever being open to Christians again The confrontation between us and the host church was not pleasant and it resulted in the church refusing to pay our hotel bill, which resulted in our leaving them an IOU note in our room written in red ink on a napkin which said, we will pay whatever is truly owed you, but we will not spend time in jail for you, which was true and we did pay all our bills and even though the church was truly responsible for it, we paid it anyway, but we wrote the note and sneaked out the back window leaving town all stuffed in a black Cadillac crossing the state line into Michigan sometimes after midnight. I vividly remember the sound of wolves howling as we crossed into the woods. (laughs) That's another story. Have things improved? Well, I'm sure they have in some places, but yesterday I had an appointment with a trusted Christian leader who told me that his pastor, who's one of these high-power super-apostle types, made the -the off-the-cuff remark to him not long ago that, quote, he never preaches on love because he doesn't know much about it. My friend said, I think it's probably the most honest thing that man's ever said. He went on to explain to me that this man's ministry was centered in power, authority, signs and wonders. He had no patience or room for something as weak and effeminate as love. I was deeply grateful that my friend had long ago seen through that charade and I couldn't help but remember the words of Jesus regarding the fact that on the day of judgment there will be those who will claim that their right for entry is that they did many mighty works and miracles and cast out devils and Jesus will say depart from me I have no relationship with you in other words there is no love. Now, of course, the great temptation here is that I fail to love these legalistic, misguided church members. I don't think my listeners have any trouble knowing what I mean by love. I'm not referring to some kind of sloppy sentimentalism that seems to keep a false peace by agreeing with everyone and everything. That's as far from love as you can get. But how do we love in cases like this? We can only love by seeking to guide people toward truth. You must decide if truth is rejected, whether you can remain and keep trying to move to move them toward truth or for you to just move on. But be very careful before making snap decisions to withdraw. The first and foremost place we must measure truth and love is within our own hearts. And that is where we are failing miserably. In our next time together, Lord willing, we'll examine some of the positive ways we can address this struggle.